Welcome to the show. I want to do something a little bit different with a series of conversations with some of the brightest, smartest liberty people I know who have widely divergent views on the debate over Israel and Palestine and what happened in the, in the Gaza Strip. And I want to challenge all of you to do something that most Americans can't do anymore, which is listen and engage and debate with, with views that are at polar ends of each other on this subject. And that's something that we could probably do here. So you're going to be hearing from various people with smart opinions, um, some of whom you'll love, some of whom you'll hate, some of whom hopefully change your mind and make you think a little bit more about this very difficult, maybe impossible issue that's happening in Israel. Congressman. Good to see you. Matt, great to be here. First thing in the morning, I was uh, scrolling through your Twitter feed and discovering just how popular you are in Washington, D.C. It's it's really a tour de force. I wouldn't use the word popular, maybe infamous. <laughs> infamous, yeah. infamous. So I, I'm working on this uh, special series for my show where I wanted to get different people from a liberty perspective who have different takes on, on liberty, uh, on on Israel versus Palestine, and more importantly, what should the U.S. role be in, in that conflict in the Middle East? And you um, immediately came to mind because of your your infamousness, is that a word, infamousness? Yeah, I think it is. Of, uh, of some, of the, some of the votes you've taken on what I, what I would consider, some of these votes are, are very consequential, but others are just political posturing, and maybe we could sort of weed through these various things, because you, um, I think we're still trying to compile just how many times you've had to opine in the House of Representatives on Israel just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's it's somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen yeah. v- votes on um, Israel and in a constellation of votes dealing with Hamas or Iran or anti-Semitism. It's uh, been Israel week for four weeks in a row in Congress. You know, we need to get back to naming post offices. <laughs> I joke because that, you know, that used to be the mode of Congress. But now the mode is this. Meanwhile, our own country is burning. I mean, we're we're so far in debt. Oh, I brought my debt clock to where. Yeah, you should definitely have that on. Yeah, it's relevant to this. I'm, I was yeah. trying to remember the name of the general who said, it was during the Tea Party days when we were actually trying to, to, to rein in the debt, there was a general that said that the national debt was the single most oh, yeah. uh, threat to national security. If And, well, it definitely is now. It's a threat to everything. It's a threat to just to internal security, to paying your bills, uh, to interest rates, to buying a car. Uh, it's catching up with us. And because, like... I'm not sure if you can catch this on camera here, but um, this has Wi-Fi and it goes to Treasury's website once a day and gets the actual debt to the penny. And so uh, it's a little bit sobering. Every morning, this thing logs itself on using your local Wi-Fi access to Treasury and downloads that number. And, And some mornings I wake up and it's jumped $50 billion overnight because they've gone out and done another auction of treasuries or bonds or whatever. And uh, 
what I've noticed is that recently those jumps are greater. The, the rate of increase is increasing. Yeah. We call that the second derivative. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's relevant to any conversation about America's posture in foreign conflicts because um, certainly Ron Paul has pointed this out, but I don't think it's new with him that empires die because of their financial situation. Right. That's how it is. Well, and, and I don't, I didn't mean to diverge too much from the topic. I just want to put it all in the context of we haven't done the 12 spending bills. Not a single one of those has been conferenced with the Senate and, and gone to the president, even though we're on our second speaker here. Uh, they just did our second CR, continuing resolution, in lieu of the funding bills. I guess because we've run out of time. Uh, but the, the irony is we've got enough time to, to do almost a dozen resolutions, bills, or supplemental spending bills for a, a country of 10 million, less than 10 million people. And uh, I think we need to, it, you know, it's not that we should ignore everything in the world, but we need to get our priorities straight and get our own house in order. But that's the context in which yeah. all of these votes are happening. Well, you, you would even wonder, um, you know, you're, you're in a unique perspective because you are a federal legislator. Your, your job is to opine on the proper things that the federal government should be doing. Um, and we have spent a good part of the last two years just talking about um, uh, Ukraine and Putin and Israel versus Hamas. And, and I think your general position is this, this is not our primary job. Like, we, we don't get involved in every foreign conflict that there is. Well, we do get involved in well, every foreign conflict shouldn't. there is, but we shouldn't get involved in every foreign conflict there yeah. is. Yeah. Yes, that is that is my position. Was there? Um, I want to talk about specifically that first um, uh, resolution, um, which which seemed like an authorization. Oh yeah, of military force. But was there a similar um, vote on Ukraine? I don't remember anymore. I assume there was. There were votes on Ukraine dating back to 2014. And I remember voting against those. It was saber-rattling against Russia. We were going to impose sanctions on Russia, um, call them you know, evil, et cetera, et cetera. And this was going to keep us out of a war, keep Ukraine out of a war, if we would just do all these things and rattle the sabers. And I voted against that stuff, too. So, yeah, there were lead-ups to the war in Ukraine that went on for, you know, eight years before the war in Ukraine um, where I was voting no on those things. But now, you know, we have these votes in Israel. Uh, we had an early vote <clears throat> right, right in the wake of the attack um, on Israel. We had an early vote, but I voted, you know, it was one of these generically titled great sounding, you know, resolutions support our, you know, ally Israel. But when you dig into it, they're open ended commitments of military assistance that don't say limited to technology or, or materials. Um, it could include troops. It, you people say, oh, well, you're just, you know, you're going well beyond what it was intended for. No, if it doesn't say not including troops, then it does include troops. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, so there were, you know, things like that, that it, it sought to expand the conflict here. We just had an attack from Hamas on Israel 
and it was condemning Iran in the resolution of support for Israel in the context of this attack. So where we should be seeking to uh, narrow the conflict and constrain it geographically uh, and politically, the, the resolution immediately was trying to expand it to other Middle Eastern countries. So those were two of the reasons um, that I voted against it. But and, th and that was the first one of the first resolutions we voted on in the last three or four weeks. And you were alone on the Republican side on that one? I was the only Republican no. And uh, I, I've seen this in hit pieces on you. Yeah, I, you should splice that in if you can, or at least link to these yeah, we'll, ads. We'll, we'll link to the, <clears throat> the APAC hit ads that they're running against you. And, and I definitely want to talk to that, but let's let's establish what this oh, okay. was first. Yeah. All right. So there was that resolution. Uh, there were some other problematic things in it uh, that I don't remember right off the bat. Um, and then short, you know, then a couple more resolutions, uh, one condemning Iran, I think, and suggesting, oh, that was an, another thing. It said we should do sanctions against Iran, and I'm generally against sanctions. Uh, but there was another, shortly thereafter, there was a rush to send more money to Israel after that resolution passed. Um, and this, in this vote, I got one other Republican to vote with me on the $14.3 billion. They said, well, okay, even though we give Israel $3.8 billion, as, just as a matter of fact, every year, it's in our own military appropriations now that $3.8 billion goes to Israel every year, even though we regularly do that, and we've already done that, and that's in one of those 12 appropriations bills that's sitting over in the Senate that they haven't passed we need to hurry up and send them another $14.3 billion of additional aid right now. And so we had that vote, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and myself were the only Republican knows on that. I forget how many Democrats we got, but there were, there were probably several Democrats who voted against it as well. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. And um, I, I'm guessing that the reason that that went through the House is because they knew they could pass it. Because it strikes me that some of these um, big globs of money that we're sending to these foreign countries just come out of the Biden administration without any sort of congressional opinion on it. Right. And that one was a little uh, hello carrot on it for conservatives because they said, we're going to take the money out of the IRS and we're going to, you know, take take that money from the, the, the bureaucratic state and give it to uh, a foreign state. So there was a little bit of a carrot Isn't there. That, is that symbolic? Like, Listen, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. When And uh, my wife is great at summing these things up. Because they call it a pay for, right? That's Washington, D.C. speak for, uh, you know, the, the shuffling of the cups and the pea movement around the pea pod. Uh, they call it a pay for. They're going to offset spending with some other reduction in spending. But my wife said, you know, when you guys say you're paying for something, what you're doing is you're 
reducing a program that's not paid for and compensating that to another program uh, and saying you're paying for it. But the original program that you're reducing wasn't itself paid for. Now, she said it a lot more succinctly than that. This uh, sounds how my wife budgets for Christmas, by the way. <laughs> you can't take something that's not paid for and say, okay, we, we were going to uh, borrow money to go on a ski trip, okay? Well, instead of borrowing that money to go on a ski trip, we're going to borrow this money to buy a motorcycle, okay? And, and so that'll be paid for. Yeah. No, it's not paid for. It's still borrowed money. Yeah. And the reality is, like you said, they're still going to give the money to the IRS someday. Yeah. Like, they're not. And then finally, uh, you know, the CBO says, oh, by the way, I don't put much uh, weight in what the CBO says, but the CBO said, oh, by the way, when you take money from the IRS, you're going to collect fewer taxes, which is actually good money, to, good reason to take money from the IRS. But when you take money from the IRS, you're going to collect fewer taxes. So you're actually exacerbating the, the economic or budgetary impact uh, of this by using that particular pay for. So this is the first vote. And it just this reminds me the reaction to your vote reminds me a little bit of of 2020 when you forced Congress to come back and yes. vote on a multi trillion dollar um, bailout of the lockdown. What I don't understand, maybe we can get to this later, is when they is why people get so mad at me when a bill passes 424 to 1 and, and it's like overwhelmingly passed. Why are they still mad at me if I'm the one? It's because as long as there is one person dissenting, one person has a voice to point out what's wrong with it. The 424 who vote for it, even though in the back of their minds they know this is flawed, and they, for some reason or another, maybe for good reasons, they decide to vote for the overall thing in the end. They can never speak to the flawed portions of what they've just done, even though they know they're there. Uh, but when you, you know, when one horse gets out of the barn, they hate it. Yeah. Because, well, then it makes the other horses look kind of bad sometimes when, you know, you're speaking the truth out there. One of the things, like if you actually want to, you, you do all the homework so that I can see the specific provisions that you point out when you actually read the legislation. Not that many legislators do that. Justin Amash used to do that, and now you do that. But the, but the thing I like about your position is that if someone honestly wants to understand where you're coming from, they can go on your, your X feed yes. and, and see specifically you highlight the provisions i link the whole this, bill yeah i link the text of the whole bill as it was passed on the floor of the house at that moment and i i, I take a screenshot and post it in case you don't want to click on the link or in case the link doesn't work someday and i put the screenshot of the bill there and you can read it and people it's so funny people will say, well, the bill, he's lying. The bill doesn't say what he says it does. Meanwhile, there's a picture of the bill right there for them with the section highlighted. Yeah. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's not that facts totally matter in these sorts of debates. It's, it's driven by emotion and interests and power and money. So uh, speaking of power and money, you made at least one new enemy. Maybe it's not a new enemy. It's not new, no. This, this particular PAC uh, and lobby has been banned from coming to my office for several years because they've run ads against me before. 
But but what I did is uh, again they got their money. This is it, is this actually APAC or is it is it APAC. some spinoff? Uh, okay. There's a constellation of organizations around APAC. Okay. Uh, they trade employees. Uh, they've got the same donors. Yeah. I'm going to upset some people right now, but one of these is called Christians United for Israel. Uh, there's a there's a particularly more politically oriented group called the Republican Jewish Coalition. There's another group. I can't. I, I don't want to get the names wrong, but um, there are several groups. There's a spinoff of APAC. By the way, APAC stands for American Israeli PAC, but PAC isn't Political Action Committee. I forget what it stands for. But they've created a Political Action Committee, uh, United Democracy Project or something like that, uh, which has the same donors, but it has a different mission now. Or And they trade staff around too, but in any case, it's a super PAC. And they are running ads against me now in my district, or have been for two weeks, because I did not vote for the money. Now, what they what they target is that resolution, because they actually what they know is if they ran ads against me saying Congressman Massey did was the only Republican who didn't vote to send your money overseas, that that would just make me more popular yeah. among my constituents. So they don't. Even though that's what they're mad about, what they pick is the resolution. And they they don't really cite any particular bill that I've voted against. So you can't go like go look at it. They say uh, Congress voted to support Israel. Well, first they start out with the, uh, you know, the rape and the pillage that occurred with some very graphic images and dark, you know, background music and, you know, Israel was attacked, and then they describe all the bad things, and then they uh, say that you know Congress stood up for Israel, but there was one Republican no vote, and then my, you know, I come on the screen. Thomas Massey voted not to stand with Israel. He voted with AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, and you know, <laughs> you should do political ad voiceover. <laughs> Anyways, the funny thing is, I don't even have a TV, so I don't. I have to go to the to like YouTube to watch the ads or or X. Yeah. Uh, and then I repost them for people to. I'm watch. trying to say X, by yeah. the way. Cause... I'm trying to say X. I know. Yeah. Uh, so they they run this ad. They bought a, a total of ninety thousand dollars of advertising. Roughly, it was uh, you know thirty six thousand dollars a TV. Uh, uh, $52,000, I'm within a few thousand dollars here, of, of radio. By the way, $50,000 of radio. That's like every 30 minutes for two weeks, yeah. this ad plays on three or four Your stations. local radio stations are probably loving you right they now. Are the, one of the guys, so I go on the local radio, and one of these guys calls me up, and he goes, we're making a killing on these ads. Like, you know, I guess at first they didn't want to run the ads. And then, so they bought, APAC bought the ads through iHeart. When I say APAC, I mean their super PAC, sure, whatever yeah. it's called. 
they they bought that so they had to go like buy them through a syndicate through like iHeart so they paid like the most money you can pay for an ad yeah and so I told I told the radio guys I'm like soak it up take all their money yeah run as many of these ads as you want and they're like all right well we'll give them 30 seconds and you can have 20 minutes so come on the show mean you know meanwhile like I'm on the show for 10 minutes and they and they say well, okay we got to go to commercial break can you hang on past the break and I know while I'm on commercial break they're running the ad and then I come back it's so anyways to all in they ran facebook ads all in $90,000 which they could have sent to Israel by the way or to somebody that needed it instead they decided to try to make an example of the one Republican who didn't vote for their resolution, who didn't vote for their money, who didn't vote for subsequent resolutions. And um, so many like so many of these causes and, and you could list an infinite number of them that they, they raise money in support of whatever project they want to spend that money to force Congress to spend our money on their favorite project. They never, ever take the money that they raise right. and send it to the cause that they're supposedly existing for. Well, if they can bully Congress into it, they get a hundred to one return. The ROI know. is pretty but, good. Yeah. Spend $14 million on elections, get $14 billion of, you know, of aid. By the way, uh, APAC, when, when they used to be allowed in my office, would make the case that all of this money we send to Israel is really a, uh, a stimulus package for the United States because it all comes back. It's basically gift certificates renewable at your local uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon outlet stores, right? Like <laughs> these are, it's not just cash that you can spend on whatever you want. You have to buy advanced U.S. military weapons from U.S. military contractors. So they're more like gift certificates. And, and APAC tries to convince or tried to convince me that, well, you should vote for this because it's, it's just good for the country. And, and so, by the way, and, and I, 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 when I was looking at all the hate on your X feed this morning, you have a, a tweet that summarizes that most U.S. foreign aid is money laundering for the U.S. military industrial complex and its beneficiaries. And, and your Vote, voting record on this question of foreign aid, on this question of, of whether or not the United States should get involved in these conflicts is consistent since you got to Congress in, oh, yeah. in 2011. 11? Yeah, uh, yeah. 2012. By the way, um, beneficiaries in that tweet, it's left up to the reader to, to figure out who the beneficiaries are of, of that money laundering project that goes to the military industrial complex some uh people own stock in those companies who are funding that there's a little circular feedback loop yeah, yeah. here so the um I, I would assume that um these ads i don't know what they're thinking but i think the goal is to scare other members of congress who are more easily scareable to fall in line as these votes continue to come through the House and the Senate. Is, th is that your read? I think um, that is one of the reads. Like That's why I'm sort of reluctant to put them on X and show everybody what's happening to me. Yeah. Uh, but I did it anyway. Uh, I think the other 
you know, when I look for reasons, rational reasons why they might do this other than spite, another rational reason to do it would be to motivate their uh, billionaire donors who might get excited to see, oh, wow, you took some of my money and you're, you're doing that to that guy? All right, I'll pay for that. Yeah. That's chump change. You know, $90,000 to rough up a congressman in Kentucky because he wouldn't go along? Well, let's, yeah. let's, here, here's another $5 million. Go have fun with it. Uh, so I think it's also possibly showing their donors, hey, these are the kind of things we do. So I've struggled with this, and you, you have a, a, a more important and very different uh, voice than I have. But, but I had been hesitant to express a lot of opinions, uh, particularly in the early days of the Hamas attack on Israel, because first of all, in the fog of war, there's so much propaganda, and I wasn't I wasn't actually confident in any information source that I had. Um, but I, you know, I um, as as a libertarian and a non-interventionist and a and a person that um, I'm, I'm both a principled non-interventionist and a realist when it comes to foreign policy, and I think there's both realist and non-interventionist reasons why this isn't an American fight. Um, but I'm still with, I have a lot of friends in Israel, so I'm, I'm with those guys and I, I feel for them. I empathize. I'm horrified by what happened. How do you deal with that as, as a member of, of Congress? Because when you express an opinion, it has implications as to what the United States might do about an injustice, the, the, the horrible things that happened. Yeah. Well, first of all, propaganda is part of war and it's going to come from both sides. And they're almost morally obligated to produce it, right? If, they're, if it's an existential issue for them, anything is on the table, right? So, um, you know, because this will motivate money and support for their side. It's just, it's a part, it's as important to war as, uh, as bullets are, propaganda is. So both sides are going to be doing it. So you have to filter that. You look for verifiable sources. Um, if you know somebody who lives there uh, on either side or somebody who's immigrated here from there, who has family back there, that's a good source. For instance, Justin Amash, he, I think maybe you saw his ex. Yeah. You can't call it a tweet. Uh, we had some cousins who were- We're doing this for Elon because on right. net, X <laughs> is better than Twitter. Yes. The, uh, it, um, you know, we, we, he posted pictures of some of his cousins who were Christians who were killed, uh, in Gaza from the counterstrikes from Israel. And I don't think Justin Amash is going to make that up. And I think if he's related to these people, he probably knows, you know, did they die when they died, how they died. He's got family going to the funerals. Um, so there's, you know, people are dying, have died on both sides. Innocent people are, uh, you know, casualty of this war. Um, I also have people who live in my district who've immigrated from Israel. One, one of the, so one of the things that I learned, so, you know, when you watch this, you wonder how could this happen? Uh, one, one question I have is what are the, what are the gun laws in Israel. So when I was 15, I, uh, 15 to 16, 
I won a, uh, an award at the International Science Fair from NASA. And it truly was an International Science Fair. There was a kid from Israel who also won this award. And we went to uh, California, first time I'd ever been to California. And I stayed in a room with this other you know, nerd who <laughs> we were, he was from Israel. I, I forget what his science project was. And we talked about, I said, you know, have you ever shot a gun? And now, mind you, this is like 1985, 1986. And he said, yeah, I've shot an Uzi. And I was like, what? You shot an Uzi? And, and he, he was like 18 or 17. And he said, yeah, there's a law in Israel that if we go on a field trip with a certain number of students, uh, a certain number of people have to be carrying guns. And so we went on this field trip in the desert and there weren't enough teachers to meet the requirements. So they took the oldest, biggest kids in the class and showed us how to shoot an Uzi. And so some of us were carrying Uzis. And that, so that blew my mind and stuck in my head. So when I'm watching what happened. Life goals, right? Life goals, yeah. right? <laughs> my teacher never gave me an Uzi. Well, I talked to somebody who's a constituent of mine who's from Israel who immigrated. And I said, isn't, you know, I thought, you all were armed to the teeth there. And he said, oh, no, that's changed. That was the case in the 80s. But there's been sort of this anti-gun movement. And I guess these, uh, particularly the communities that are closer to the border, have sort of local militias, he was explaining to me, where you're supposed to train on, if you are attacked, here's a, a local repository of guns that you could use. And, and you should, you know, drill with these. And he said that they kind of gotten lax and that recently, again, this is only one person has told me this. This person could be wrong, but I trust him more than every news thing I've seen because I've known this guy for a decade. And he said, actually, Netanyahu's administration was taking some of those guns back because these were the more liberal people in these areas and he's the more conservative government and they didn't really trust them to have these guns so there been there was a trend or has yeah. been a trend in israel to disarm the, i, I the think population. that i think the trend is real because the first time i went to israel i've been there three or four times and we started a tea party in tel aviv and and i still have a lot of friends there but because they have mandatory conscription you have you have a very well-trained population that would be very capable of defending itself and I was kind of surprised to discover that it's very difficult to to own a gun in Israel something you learned after the attacks so it must be a a newer trend that the, they're disarming their population which which seems insane to me seems insane to me um, given the threats yeah and it this was a like it this is something I was thinking back to a conversation we had about Ukraine very early on in the Ukrainian conflict, the parliament or the Senate, whatever that body is in, in Ukraine, suddenly decided, now that they had been invaded by, by Russians, that they would allow people to have guns again. A little bit yeah. too, too little too late, but it looks like, like Israel has now done the same thing. Um, and it's, it, doesn't, it particularly doesn't make sense in Israel not to have these well-trained people that you've already conscripted into service be ready to defend themselves. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. 
My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So this, this gets to another question. Uh, so your question was, what do you use for sources of information? How do you sift through the propaganda? I look for individual real touch points of real people that I know. And, uh, you know, also have people I know who've immigrated from Lebanon. They've been American citizens for decades. Okay. Uh, they went to high school here and now they're 50 or 60 years old. Okay. But they still have family back in Lebanon or that, that kind of stuff. So, uh, those I use for touch points, but this gets us to another question now that we're discussing small arms and whatnot. The $14.3 billion we voted to send to Israel, is it really going to things that will stop something like an, uh, a terrorist invasion, which was, a, from the videos that I saw, seemed to be fairly low tech, right? These weren't heat-seeking missiles. These were home made rockets these were rubber tired track loaders like you might see moving salt at a road department or you know sawdust at a sawmill going through fences uh, these were you know low technology drones for instance or i don't know about the ultralights or hang gliders or whatever are the weapons the 14.3 billion dollars of gift certificates that are redeemable at raytheon and lockheed martin are they, is that the kind of thing that would make Israel safer? Or, you know, what are the goals there? Yeah. So that's another question that needs to be asked. So one thing I uh, want to go back to, because I, I think this is such an important point about the political enemies that you've, you've brought back to your district, um, the accusation charged against you because you voted against what amounted to a blank check of, of American involvement in, in a war in the Middle East was that you were anti-Semitic. They used the A word. Is that true? That is true. It's in a, a tweet from APAC. It's subsequently been ratioed for their tweet. But uh, in defense of my vote, I tweeted, sorry, X'd, whatever. Maybe you can still tweet on X. Okay, I, I tweeted on X that... Uh, I'm putting America first, that it's it's spite of the pressure, I will not vote to send $14.3 billion overseas. Okay, uh, APAC, I think they quote tweeted that and said, this is, uh, this is promoting a dual loyalty trope and it's anti-Semitic. Uh, so they called me anti-Semitic for my defense of that vote and my defense was I'm putting America first. So it's like, man, at the drop of a hat, you can be called anti-Semitic now. Yeah. And um, also we, <laughs> shortly after that, we had a hearing in judiciary committee on, it was supposed to be about free speech on campus. And we were supposed to bring in these kids that have been, uh, you know, silenced on their campus by the administration. But, because of the recent events, the current events, the, they got some new witnesses 
or augmented the set of witnesses and it became a hearing on anti-Semitism. And it was like three solid hours of why you shouldn't be able to say certain things on a campus. It, it like totally became the opposite of what the hearing was supposed to be. And I was kind of so amazed and disgusted that I didn't even ask a question uh, of any of the witnesses. But I heard things said about, you know, uh, anti-Zionism uh, anti is anti-Semitism. That's what the, the expert witnesses said in this hearing. And that, you know, when you're criticizing Israel, you're, you're, you're criticizing all Jews. And I didn't really buy into that. So I think about this in the context of because uh, it, it is it is completely blurred. And I, I think it, it does a complete disservice to calling out actual anti-Semites. Um, and it's it's a real thing. It's a real problem. But if you can't criticize the government of Israel, think about that in the context of what you do every day. You and I criticize our own government right. every day, but we're right. not allowed to criticize a foreign government. And we can't, it's, it's sort of a collectivist way to think about things. That government and the, the, the people in charge of that government in no way reflects the people of Israel. So I, I wanna be, I wanna stand with, with the people of Israel, but I don't even wanna say that because it sounds like propaganda because <laughs> I, I do have criticisms. I, I think any libertarian would right. have criticisms of a government's behavior and that's not unusual for us. And, and so uh, we had the most recent vote last night was, to your point, uh, sort of tying this back to congressional activity, a, a vote to reaffirm Israel's right to exist. Uh, and if, that, if the title were the bill, uh, would that be easy vote? Okay. You'd be a yes. I'd be a yes. If you, if you want to go seasteading, Matt Kibbe, and create you a floating island and bring on some like-minded people. I sort people. of do, yeah. Yeah, and they all have to wear handlebar mustaches and black hats and flannel. Uh, if that's part of your, you know, constitution and that's your country, I recognize your right to exist and let's get you an ambassador here in Washington, D.C. as soon as possible. And a super, yeah, maybe a super PAC, maybe not. I, I need a I'm, I'm going to stop right there. I don't, I don't recognize your right to have a super PAC and run ads against me. Uh, <clears throat> but you have a right to do that. I, I respect sovereign countries, okay? Uh, it's part of the problem I have with what we're doing in Syria right now. Syria is a, Syria has a right to exist. Why, why do we have, why are we occupying Syria right now? We have, we have, Soldiers in Syria. There's no authorized war uh, that allows us to be there. And we're there against the sovereign government of Syria. Uh, so I recognize Syria's right to exist. I recognize Israel's right to exist. And I thought, well, it's a pretty easy vote. We can, we can finally clear the record and I can vote yes, and people realize uh, I'm not that bad. And I get, like, it's a two-page resolution with a dozen whereas clauses, and I get through the whereas, okay, okay, okay. Now, therefore, be it resolved. Okay, what's because this is the important part, what's in the resolved. And they resolved that 
uh, if you don't recognize Israel's right to exist, you're anti-Semitic. And I, that's where I stopped. And I said, I have a problem with this. Uh, you know, Israel's right to have a, uh, an, an ethno-national state. Uh, some people might question that, okay? That doesn't make that. Some Jews might question that. Some Jews do question that, whether, you know, that's a good thing. That doesn't make them anti-Semitic. And, you know, it's Zionism could be defined a lot of ways. I'll just go with sort of the Wikipedia Internet version, simplified American, which is, you know, uh, holding up Israel and, and saying they they have this existential right to exist. And we're going to promote Israel and the state of Israel as a homeland for Jewish people. Uh, and. Here, I recognized inside of this resolution something that was in the hearing two weeks before, which is this notion that if you're not a Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. If you don't, and I reject that. Now, uh, I'm equating a lot of things that might not be equal myself, like just recognizing Israel's right to exist doesn't make you a Zionist, for instance. But, I'd, but I can see where this is going. And if you're on a campus and you want to, you're in a political science class, <laughs> which I'm a political science denier, it's not a science, but let's say you're in one of these uh, classes talking about governments and, and theoretical constructs, and you say, well, should a country, is it a good idea to have a country that's uniform in race and religion? What kind of problems does that create when there are other people living in that country? Just having that discussion would, would make you anti-Semitic if you agree to this construct that uh, not recognizing Israel's right to exist makes you anti-Semitic. It gets to the issue of free speech, free thought, uh, and... What other country, there, there are lots of countries, what other country gets a vote in Congress saying they have the right to exist? Like, why are we doing that this week? Part of the reason, and I know this for a fact, like I, I walk around on the floor of the House of Representatives, I talk to the bill's sponsors, the bill's co-sponsors, I talk to the Speaker of the House. I know about the politics of this. Part of the reason that that resolution was brought to the floor last night, and this is half of the, half of the resolutions that do nothing. No, probably 90% of the resolutions that do nothing that are brought to the floor by the majority are meant to make the minority look bad. And so this was no exception. They had envisioned this resolution recognizing Israel's right to exist and then putting some stuff in there they thought would cause the Democrats to vote no would make Democrats look bad. And so this was too cute by half. They thought, okay, we're going to make the Democrats look bad. And then Amer the American Jewish people will recognize they should be Republicans. And so we'll, that's a good reason to put this on the floor and force a vote. Well, they forced a vote. They didn't get the outcome they wanted. What happened is I was the only no. The Rashida Tlaib voted present, and 
you know, Ilhan Omar and AOC, uh, they've voted for the resolution. So the, you know, the political scientists, I'm using that as a pejorative, among our conference who thought this would score points politically were too cute by half and it didn't work for them. Now, I didn't vote no to mess up their plan. I voted no because I think it's a bad idea to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitic uh, activity. Well, you do have this sort of weird perspective that you apply to your vote decision-making matrix, which is constitutional authority. And I know that that's it's antiquated, yes. <laughs> maybe different, um, which is a nice segue to another highly controversial vote you made uh, regarding, and I'll, I'll screw up the details because it's, it's a, a week or so ago, which seems like a lifetime, but, but there was some sort of effort in the House to defund certain universities that allowed for, um, um, I guess, anti-Israel protests. Mm -hmm. And, and those, those protests were not all the same, and some of them were, were uh, a lot of the speech was, was really offensive, um, and you voted against that. Why? Uh, so first of all, if I would vote against all funding, if you just want to categorically get the federal government out of education, I would do that in a which, heartbeat. Which we should. Yeah. I am the author of the bill to eliminate the Department of Education, the federal Department of Education. So there were some libertarians who were saying, well, you should have voted for this because it was going to withhold money from universities and aren't you about the debt and don't you want to withhold money? The problem is there, there is a case law on this. You, you can't, and, and also just morally, you shouldn't be trying to use the federal government and federal money to affect speech, okay? And withholding money in this way, conditionally based on things that you couldn't otherwise do. Like the federal government can't, say, Matt Kibbe, you're not allowed to say things which are racist or anti-Semitic. Like, deplorable speech is protected, okay? And the federal government can't stop you from saying deplorable things constitutionally. So to pretend that we're going to launder and, and, and dilute the Constitution by getting universities to do what we want uh, by withholding their funding if they don't do what we want, and what we want is to curb First Amendment speech, that doesn't make it constitutional. You can't take three steps to accomplish what would be unconstitutional in one step and call the three-step version constitutional. So the resolution would withhold money, all money, not money for anti-Semitic projects, but it would hold, withhold all money from a university that authorized, enabled, uh, you know, supported any kind of activity where anti-Semitic speech was occurring. But authorized, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you're not banning it. It can still happen. They just can't authorize it. But have you been on a campus these days? Like, you, you want to book a room, an auditorium? They are, the campus administration is authorizing that the minute they say you can use this room. To, to have the speaker come in. And um, how do you know what the speaker's going to say? 
so many problems. Yeah. This, and and so that was that was actually for me an easy vote to vote against that. But again, they say, oh, now you, well, anti-Semitic. Yep. He he supports anti-Semitic speech. Well, think which about is not the yeah. Case. I mean, think about the implications since the government is so heavily invested in all of our nominally private institutions. Money is flowing to everything all the time, and and this this is a big problem with with the Department of Education and Title IX and all of that stuff where where those we're using that federal stick to force compliance. So you're talking about the infrastructure of a speech code, and it's not just going to be this. It's not just going to be questioning the official narrative on lockdowns or whatever the next thing is that the government wants to impose on us. It's a it's a blank check to really start censoring speech. And, and by the way, the put this in the context of what I have witnessed in the last two or three weeks. I've had ninety thousand dollars of ads run against me by Zionists. Okay, they they're promoting you know the state of Israel and they want America to do that. And here's a congressman who's not going along to get along, so they're going to run ads against him. I've been called anti-Semitic for not voting a certain way, okay, to send $14 billion overseas. So now I'm told not voting to give money to Israel is anti-Semitic. Uh, I'm told in a hearing in our Judiciary Committee that if, you, uh, if you're not Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. In a congressional hearing, sworn testimony, okay, this isn't somebody on Twitter, or, sorry, X, saying this. Um, and now... I see a resolution that I'm supposed to vote that's going to ban anti-Semitism on campuses. But wait, I, I see the definition of anti-Semitism growing, by the way, and I think it, it is uh, against the interests of people who are Jewish who have been discriminated against to expand this definition to include so many ridiculous things that aren't anti-Semitism. It becomes meaningless. Correct. It, it gives cover. For real correct. anti-Semites, correct, and and so that's where we are. Yeah, the uh, I mean, thinking about the campus thing, and you know, if if you guys hadn't gotten involved, it was sort of fun to watch the 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 circular firing squad on these elite universities where where they were <laughs> they were not allowing certain things, and and suddenly they started allowing other things, and it's like. Maybe they need to reconsider their policies and, and get back to this this ideal where campuses were a place where you could talk about difficult things and you could be anti-war on this side or that side and the other. So, so their hypocrisy is great, but then you guys came along and spoiled it by making it a political posturing thing that that ultimately was was just a backdoor to, to censorship. So, um, I guess I shouldn't say you guys since you were the only one that voted against it. <laughs> I just just for you know running for the office, I'm incriminated uh, just by being here. So, so um, I, I want to do a lightning round of um, you've been causing trouble on other things. I'll try. And, Let's be and quick. as you know, one of my obsessions, and we've been talking about this. You and I have been talking about this on this show for the last three years. Um, we continue to, to discover just how much the federal government was censoring people, dissidents who were questioning the official narrative on COVID, on lab leaks, on masks, on vaccine mandates, everything else. And, and as you follow the breadcrumbs, you're discovering that it, that it wasn't 
is um, this part of this is theory, but part of it is 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 very much the facts that are emerging with uh, Schellenberger's latest uh, revelations. It wasn't public health. It wasn't Fauci, NIH, CDC that were the top of the heap when it came to, to censoring American speech. It was the the uh, de defense industrial complex, all of these alphabet agencies, um, FBI, CIA, DOD, Department of Homeland Security. That the, seems crazy to me. So um, we now call that the censorship industrial complex. And Thank we have, you. That's easier. Yeah. We have another hearing on that in my weaponization committee this week. Um, and uh, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi will be there again. They've uncovered some new facts. Uh, what Again, they're trying to... Uh, take three steps to infringe on your constitutional rights when one step wouldn't be allowed. So I, and I know this is supposed to be a lightning round, so I'll go quick. I'll go quicker no, than I normally would. You, you're a member of Congress. You can't go that quickly. <laughs> By the way, I'm skipping a GOP conference meeting to do this. So we got a little more time than normal. <laughs> uh, those aren't the most productive meetings. Don't, don't worry if you're one of my constituents. I am missing nothing from this meeting. <laughs> Uh, they're actually, and this is one of the meetings I'm missing is where they're trying to shake you down for money, but uh, for the party. Uh, so what we found out was that the NSF and, and other government agencies were funding uh, 501c3s, NGOs, universities to create this web of censorship that would sit there it had algorithms that would sit there on the internet and look for misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation using algorithms that could, because one human can't sit there and do all this. And uh, so they built this thing and then they had portals directly to the social media companies, Twitter and Facebook, for instance. Uh, and so what happens is, the government funds these this web of things that ostensibly aren't government and then with a wink and a nod and then those folks do the dirty work of sifting through your and I and my communications and then send it to the social media companies who want to be in the good graces of government because they're always facing regulation and you know some of their contracts come from the government so they don't want to get on the wrong side of government and this, this loop, which took three steps instead of one, uh, is just as unconstitutional as the one-step process where the government comes in and, and hits, has a ban button on Twitter. It's like censorship laundering. Yes, yes. they are laundering it. Uh, the, one of the interesting things to me is I show up in some of these documents, my tweets, as a congressman, on my official, not my campaign account, not my personal account, my official account, that where I can't, I'm not allowed supposedly to ban people f from communicating, from saying the nastiest things they want, curse words and all that. You know, it's just, which, which happens. Which is fine. I'm inviting the trolls. Come over to at Rep Thomas Massey. Get sassy with Massey. That's the hashtag. Uh, I I love you know having dissension on there, and. Um, so, the, but but these organizations were flagging my tweets, especially during COVID, and I was referencing actual 
articles. One of them was from Israel, like a scientific study in Israel I was referencing. I referenced a, a Bloomberg curation of a, a scientific uh, article, and I was getting banned or targeting my, my communications for being banned. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here in Congress and we're funding the things that are doing this. So I offered, well, I had an amendment prepared. The, the 12th appropriations bill went down, didn't get to the floor, but I had an amendment to defund this. And I would have loved to got a vote on that. Now when we do an omnibus, I won't get that vote. But um, this has happened, it's more uh, pervasive than we thought it was. And we're, we're finding out more and more every day. So need to stop it. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. It's it's fast like I don't I don't even know how to describe how um, unethical and unconstitutional it is for the government to be funding third parties to censor American speech who then end up censoring a member of Congress. That that's like that's like next level. By the way, unconstitutional. Yeah, and let's talk about how we got here. We're this core competency of censorship and uh, changing narratives in social media came from. As social media evolved, the CIA recognized it would be a good way to overthrow governments and sow dissension in other countries is when, you know, through Facebook and, and Twitter. Uh, so they worked on these things to create Arab Springs and uh, a revolt in Ukraine. Uh, that's where this core competency was developed. And then in, in 2016, they decided, oh, the, the Russians are doing this to us. So we need to combat it here. And so it became a domestic competency and uh, in the name of elections and keeping elections safe, but it's all slanted to one side. So we took what was an externally focused, we recognize it's totally not constitutional, so we pointed it at other countries. Then we pointed it at our own country. And then, uh, you know, after the election, it got pointed on COVID. It became, these are all the same people, the same algorithms. The, whatever the thing de jure is, that's what they focus on. Yeah, maybe, maybe now Israel. Yep. What's next? Um, Pelosi, mask mandate. You are still fighting that fight, and rem remind people what happened and what the legal challenge is. So uh, we're two years into this fight. I said, if I got to take it to the Supreme Court, I will. And this week we filed for cert. Um, that is, we filed asking the Supreme Court to take up our case. Um, we we were dismissed at the uh, district and circuit level, but their the logic that those judges used basically nullifies the 27th Amendment to the Constitution. I think our, by the way, uh, let me back up. I am, I am suing Nancy Pelosi, the Sergeant at Arms, and the Chief Administrative Officer of the House. These are the three named defendants for reducing my salary 
in order to compel me to wear a mask or to try to compel me to wear a mask. Eventually it didn't work. Uh, and, and that's what gave me standing is they reduced my salary. The 27th Amendment says that you can't uh, pass a law, which any congressional action has, has the weight of a law, that reduces or increases, it says vary, but that varies a member's salary without an intervening election. 27th Amendment was one of 12 amendments that were proposed with, that included 10 that became the Bill of Rights, right? There were two that weren't uh, ratified, and one of them was what became the 27th Amendment. It was ratified over 200 years later. If you go back and look at the founders' discussion of the 27th Amendment, it's clear. The reason they put very, the word very salary instead of increased salary is it was common knowledge that you could twist uh, a man's will, bend a man's will, to uh, your means if you could affect his sustenance, if you could. And so they said, oh, and by the way, the Constitution says you can't. It also says you can't reduce a judge's salary uh, in the course of their tenure. So for the same reason they had proposed this when they proposed the Bill of Rights, became 27th Amendment. Nancy Pelosi violated it. There's, the facts aren't in question. She reduced my salary. Okay. Uh, and I, I regret this is a fight about a Congress member's salary. I, I, have, uh, I, ha I can read the room. I have situational awareness. I know I'm losing sympathy every second that I say my salary shouldn't have been reduced. <laughs> Some people say it should be zero. Uh, but they, much like my constituents, were coerced into taking a vaccine or wearing a mask. I was coerced in the same way. Your employment was threatened. Your job was threatened. You know, if you your salary was reduced if you were an airline pilot and, and wouldn't take it, like they used all these other means. Was it was there a point where unvaccinated congressmen had to wear a mask and other members didn't? Wasn't that, that a thing? That is the point. So Nancy Pelosi in a press conference was asked, "When will congressmen?" no longer have to wear a mask on the floor. And she said, when every one of them is vaccinated. And that is the moment when I said, I'm taking off the mask, this crap stops here. And I got 10 members of Congress to go with me during a vote series. We knew where the C-SPAN cameras would point and we stood there, all 10 of us, most of them women, by the way, uh, without our masks on. And made sure that everybody in the country could see we were going against this. And then we subsequently got fined. And uh, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ralph Norman are my uh, co-plaintiffs in this case. All right. So why did they dismiss our case at the at the district and, and circuit level? Uh, they said that the speech or debate clause in the Constitution, which gives Nancy Pelosi immunity, according to them, and for for official actions, by the way, that's a good clause in the Constitution. Uh, I like it. it. It's like a it's an extra super duper special free speech clause for members of Congress. And it's uh, and the reason the founders put that in there is the king and the executive branches, you know, would punish members of parliament for things they said in the course of, you know, their job in parliament and our founders didn't want 
members of Congress to be tormented by these libel and defamation laws, which would definitely be the case. Can you imagine the sort of lawfare every day that would be conducted on congressmen if we could be held accountable for libel and defamation in courts? We can't be. And I think that's a good thing. But and, and then so the courts have decided that that's pretty broad and includes any actual legislative action is is speech. And so they're saying that Pelosi is immune uh, and also by association, her deputies, I call them the deep Congress, sergeant at arms, you know, the administrative branch of the of the Congress. Here's the problem with that. That with their ruling, uh, there's no way to enforce the 27th Amendment. We members of Congress, according to the district and circuit court's logic, we could go to the floor today and and each give ourselves a million dollars. We could vote for that without an intervening election in contravention of the 27th Amendment, direct and flagrant contravention of the 27th Amendment. And if, if somebody complained and brings it to the D.C. district court, there's a precedent that says, well, they can vary their salary all they want. They're covered by the speech or debate clause. I do not believe that the speech or debate clause was meant to, to give us the ability to do unconstitutional things without being held accountable for it. For instance, can we, if, if somebody doesn't vote for an is, a vote on Israel, can they be flogged on the floor of the House? Can we erect gallows? Can we execute members of Congress uh, as, as a uh, punishment for violating a House rule? I think that you, you probably shouldn't float these hypotheticals, <laughs> by the way. Well, I mean, I because I... somebody's taking notes right now. <laughs> I'd be the first one in the gallows. Right. OK, uh, so I think it's 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 uh, an unsustainable ruling. They've nullified the 27th Amendment. They've said it's not basically they've said it's not enforceable. And so we're asking the Supreme Court to take this up and, and answer the question of is speech or debate clause uh, absolute and does it cover even unconstitutional acts that were prohibited by the constitution well that's kind of redundant but implemented after it chronologically i would say an amendment to the constitution affects things that were in the base constitution so the base constitution says that the house each house can make its own rules and they and they give you a lot of leeway there. But we're saying the one rule they can't make is messing around with our salaries to get us to do stuff, because that's the 27th Amendment. And since it comes after the, the phrase that says you can make any rule you want and it says, but you can't make this rule, you can't do this, then this affects that. We'll see if the Supreme Court will take it up. It's. Uh, the probability, if you're just looking at raw probability of, of people who apply to get their cases heard at the Supreme Court and, and the number of cases that get taken up, it's extremely small. But our, our chances of having it taken up are, are heightened or improved by the fact that this is a constitutional issue, that the 27th Amendment was ratified in 1992. And there's not a whole lot of case law defining what it really means. And it, and it goes to the base constitution and the way Congress operates. So hopefully um, they'll take it up and we'll get an answer. 
So this this reminds me of another very popular position you've taken, and and I want to give some context for this. Popular. I, I'm going to. I'm betting that's facetious. I'm I'm being sarcastic, um, and I, I think a, a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans, libertarians, everyone's like, heck yeah, on this. You're suing Nancy Pelosi for trying to bully you into wearing a mask, but the same principle applies to your vote. Um, on the Adam Schiff censorship. <laughs> I knew you were going there. And we should qualify this by pointing out that Adam Schiff is not a good guy. I don't no. know if you're allowed to say that, but I, I find him to be one of the most reprehensible members of Congress um, I'm in, not obligated, in quite some time. I'm not obligated to defend him when you say that. <laughs> That's to say all you want. <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of conservatives that were just a second ago, heck yeah, and now they're like, hold my beer, um, the... The libs have have weaponized government against us, and now that we have control of the house, we can go after one of their guys and strip him of his salary. Um, and you said that no, we can't do that. That's unconstitutional. Right. So uh, just to attenuate the hate that I'm going to receive, uh, I did vote for the resolution that took Adam Schiff off the Intel Committee because I think he abused his access to information there, which not all members of Congress have that same access. He mischaracterized that and, and betrayed trust. Uh, and I did vote to censure him, okay? It, <laughs> it may not have been a smart vote. He raised $8 million on it, and he's raised for Senate uh, just by, hey, look at what Congress is doing to me. But what I did not vote for, sort of infamously, and I leaned into this. There were other members of Congress, but I was the only one defending the vote, so I became the lightning rod for, from conservatives who were upset with me. I did not vote to take $16 million from this man uh, with a simple majority of a congressional vote. There's lots of issues there to unpack. I know we're in speed round, but uh, there was no due process. Uh, how were we? How are we going to collect sixteen million dollars? Uh, well, the only way that they've ever discovered is the way they used to collect the the fine from me. They garnish your salary, and they would reduce his salary to nothing. So, it would be, and it would, if they could go beyond that and actually get the sixteen million dollars, his financial disclosure forms show that he's not worth sixteen million dollars. He would be bankrupt. And some people say, well, you could take it out of his campaign, let him pay for it with his campaign. Uh, so that would also bankrupt his campaign for Congress. So basically what you're doing at that point is you are he either has to leave Congress to avoid becoming bankrupt or he can't get reelected because we're taking all of his campaign money. So you're basically evicting him from Congress, which we have provision for that in the Constitution. It requires a two-thirds vote to kick somebody out of Congress, but that wasn't the vote. And so you can't creatively come up with ways to kick somebody out of Congress with a majority vote when the Constitution requires a two-thirds vote. Uh, so it, and it's just not sustainable. The only reason it could ever work is we're in the majority. And then when we go in the minority, they're going to do that to us. And people say, well, you know, you should do that to them before they do it to you. Don't be so naive. Uh, 
It's funny, like you you sit on the what is it called the weaponization of government yes <laughs> committee and and um, your side very righteously says that the government was used against conservatives or used against Republicans it was used against uh, critics of anything that the government was doing but there is this this tendency amongst some conservatives to say hold my beer now that we have power let's do the exact same thing that they did to us. Not thinking that two years from now, Democrats could have a majority in the House, they could have a majority in the Senate, they could have the presidency. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't know exactly how to fix this because people are just now like, they've, they've thrown aside the Constitution and, and they're just pissed now. They want to, they post, want vengeance. Yeah, we're in a post-constitutional social media mob uh, era right now. And people tell me, you need to, quit being naive, quit clinging to these romantic notions of defending the Constitution and get real and start fighting with the gloves off. And I don't know anybody that fights harder than me in Congress. Uh, and but the problem is, I'm not if you abandon the Constitution, then what are you fighting for? You're not really fighting for anything. Yeah. OK. And I, this final question, um, it's a it's a big can of worms and I've, I've actually wanted to do an entire show on this and maybe we will sometime but uh, January 6th and um, the latest videotapes have been released um, you've you've been very vocal specifically on the question I think going back for a year two years I don't know when you first started asking those questions of, of the FBI I've asked the Attorney General Merrick Garland I've asked the FBI director Christopher Ray. How many feds were in that crowd fomenting violence? Correct. And they will not answer that question. They, they refuse to answer it. And as time goes on, we have more and more reason to believe that <laughs> that number is not zero. <laughs> we know it's not zero. And um, the question is, what sort of things were they saying? What sort of things were they engaged in? And it would be naive to think that among that crowd, there weren't some people doing that who were uh, acting on behalf of our government because look at what they did in Michigan with the governor, governor Whitmer uh, kidnapping ploy. Most of those people were agents or assets of the government. Uh, there's so many people who've been convicted. I think it, that would be exculpatory to their cases to know that uh, if there were agents who were basically entrapping them uh, or encouraging them to do that, it does, I'm not defending their actions, but it does, it, it does color their actions. And we need to know, did, you know, cause if you go back and look at uh, in Ukraine in 2014, when we, we actually fomented the overthrow of the government there, it looks a l very similar. The people outside of the Capitol doing things. I'm not saying this was an over an attempted overthrow of the government here, but um, how many you know federal assets were there doing that? We need to know. And and there's also I'm supposed to get a briefing on the pipe bomb issue. This thing is sketchy as all get out. The government claims they like I've I've been in a room with the head FBI person in charge of the DC field office of the investigation doing a sworn 
uh, deposition. Not all of this has been released, but um, where he he told me that the cell phone data was corrupted, and that's why they can't figure out. That may be why they can't figure out who that person was, the suspect they have on video that seems like they were planning those two fake pipe bombs. They were fake. So, um, the you know. Were you shocked to discover that the phone data was corrupted? <laughs> he seemed shocked. He seemed embarrassed to tell me when he said it. He's like, ah, no, I don't want to fuel any conspiracy theories, but, you know, uh, it was uh not intentionally and then he goes well i i don't know that it was intentionally but to my knowledge not intentionally corrupted and we couldn't get it uh and then i got some of the like i'm not sure all the january 6th video is released yet by the way and i think it should all be released and whatever you know they're saying it will compromise our security whatever we have to change after those videos are released then we should just change it because this is too important not to get it all out there some of the video that I got released, I think, shows who found the second pipe bomb at the DNC. You know, the, what are the odds that a pipe bomb sat there, you know, looks like a, a wily Coyote Acme pipe bomb, you know, from the cartoons, sat there for uh, 16 hours and then got discovered within 20 minutes of, of the other pipe bomb that got discovered by some random passerby. Anyways, we think we've got on video, and I got the video released. I showed it to Christopher Ray. He wouldn't comment on it. We think we got a video of the person who found that second pipe bomb informing the police. I want to know who that person is. Was that an undercover officer? How did he know to find it? Why did they quit looking after they found that one? Uh, lots of questions that still need answered there. You know, you mentioned something earlier about about censorship and how we've 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 created this this weapon that we aim at other countries to manipulate um, elections and public opinion and all that stuff. Glenn Greenwald has been really interesting voice on this question of of January sixth and 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 whether or not the the feds were manipulating this crowd to get them to do something. And, but it's, it's the same process, right? We're, we're either going to manipulate speech and social media online, create hysteria and, and anger in a certain direction, or we're going to do this. And I say this like I, I want to talk about it because as it happens, I was doing Glenn Beck's podcast on January 7th of that year. And so naturally we talked about this. And as a former community organizer, I know that's a dirty word, but we we went out of our way in the Tea Party days to train people on nonviolence. Never take the bait. Never, ever let um, the left um, catch you doing something inappropriate or violent or angry or anything else. And so when I saw all of this happening, I'm like, they, they, just, they just completely screwed Violated, it up. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and they've created this narrative, which um, some, somebody has created this narrative that Trump conservatives are violent people. And, and now the question is, who created that narrative? So uh, one of the things I'm so glad I did, I was part of a group of uh, six congressmen who published on January 3rd, three days before, a statement. And the reason we put that out, there was some discussion about whether we should wait until after January 5th. Remember, there was an election for Senate down in Georgia. Yeah. And some of the congressmen were like, well, 
we should wait. We don't want to color that vote down there, that election down there. But I said, and I was adamant, we need to publish this now. We need to get it out a few days before January 6th because people are getting on buses and coming here and no good's going to come out of that. And so on January 3rd, you can it's indelible. You can't take it off the Internet. Chip Roy and Nancy Mace and Kelly Armstrong and myself uh, published a document saying uh, basically we don't like how everything was done, but our, our job as congressmen isn't to adjudicate whether these are the electors they should have sent from the state. We, we're just supposed to adjudicate are these the electors they sent. That's that's the extent of our adjudication. And, um, you know, the reason I can say this now, I was so adamant that we put that out on January 3rd instead of January 5th after that Senate election was I did. I thought this was not going to turn out well. And then on January 5th, the night of January 5th, I was uh, at another congressman's townhouse and um, there were five or six congressmen gathered there. And I said, I'll go get dinner and bring it back. And when I went out, it just felt like explosive. It felt like a tender box. And I thought, this is like, to use a farm analogy, it seemed like a 50-pound bag of feed. And the stitches were about to bust. And all that feed was going to go on the ground. Uh, and, I, and I commented to some people, like, I just, it felt bad. And I think it wasn't. It was a situation that was easy to manipulate, and I think it was manipulated. Yeah. Well, we one went over time, and two, I think we broke a record because I think every single person in the country is angry at you right now for one <laughs> of at least one of your positions, because we've we've taken all. And that was totally my goal: is to just like let's let's see if we can uh, get people more upset at Massey. I am fine with that. Um, I am consistent. Like n very few people will can argue that I'm not consistent, and um, I'm consistent even if it makes you upset sometimes, even if it's not the outcome that I wanted. Um, and I think that's what you'll see over all these votes that I've taken. Hopefully, when I when I leave Congress, and I am running for re-election, but when I eventually don't run for re-election, I will have the most peace in my head, peace of mind that any member of Congress has ever had after they left. There will be no regrets, and that is the that is the way I approach every vote. Will I regret? having compromised on, on this issue or that when I'm back on my, in my rocking chair on my porch in Kentucky. And the answer, is, I hope, is I will not regret any of it. I assume that your local radio station friends are quite excited that you're running again. <laughs> it's going to be quite a cash cow. There, there, are, there are people uh, outside of my district trying to recruit somebody inside of my district to run against me right now over a foreign policy issue yeah uh that kind of excites me hey if if i've got like advocates of foreign governments in my district trying to get me unelected i'm probably doing something right for america 
Oh, you won't shy away from a fight. We know that. Yeah. Thank you, Congressman. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.